The time is now. Volume 6, episode 116. This is Employment Law Now, back and better than ever. I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. I hope you are all doing well. Um, I was going to say happy Memorial Day to all of you who are actually listening to this on May 30th, 2022. It always does feel a little strange, though, to say Happy Memorial Day. You know, yes, it is the unofficial kickoff to summer, and what three-day weekend isn't a happy one to everybody. But Memorial Day really, as a day, uh, when you reflect on the purpose of it, it is to honor those who have given their life through service and for those who are serving right now in the military. So it is not really a happy Memorial Day, but in fact a day to reflect and be thankful. So however you want to take it, I hope you are doing something good, something special, uh, even if just relaxing on this Memorial Day weekend. There are a lot of things I want to update you on in this particular episode. That includes getting your take on the most overused and, dare I say, annoying workplace-related phrases from 2021 and 2022. Wow, that's a lot of trash. No, I wouldn't say that it's a lot of trash. I think you'll find it interesting, maybe just a tad bit entertaining. But before I do get there... This is one of those episodes that I'm not focusing on just one particular issue, but really a hodgepodge of important developments that I want to make sure you are aware of. And if I don't jinx it, and I really don't want to jinx it, but I have to ask the question, is is anyone really talking about COVID-19 and employment law issues so much anymore? Oh, no. All right, so maybe that's overstating things a little bit, but I do have my 10 topics, to be specific, that I want to get through to you in this particular episode. So we might as well get started, and despite what I just said, I guess let's start with COVID-19, and my number one topic is an update on federal vaccine mandates, even though we haven't really talked about them all that much so far. No, there is nothing really new on the OSHA private employer mandate front. No, there's nothing really new on the healthcare industry or the federal contractor front. But yes, there has been a recent development when it comes to the federal employee vaccine mandate, the mandate for federal employees. You may remember that a prior federal district court in Texas issued a preliminary injunction barring the federal government from proceeding with that federal employee vaccine mandate. But just recently, we had the Fifth Circuit review that district court decision, and in a split three to two decision, the Fifth Circuit revived the mandate for all federal employees on the ground that the lower district judge lacked jurisdiction to actually hear the case under the Civil Service Reform Act because those workers, those federal workers who challenged the vaccine mandate were first required to file a grievance through the procedure set forth in the Civil Service Reform Act which has an exclusive grievance review program. In other words, the Civil Service Reform Act, according to the Fifth Circuit, 
has a comprehensive and exclusive set of procedures and requirements for resolving any disputes between the federal government and federal civil service employees. And because the plaintiffs in this case never proceeded through challenging, um, according to the comprehensive and exclusive set of procedures under the Civil Service Reform Act, they were not able to go into court and first challenge the federal employee vaccine mandate that way. So again, one of the interesting takeaways, I think, from this decision is that the decision itself has nothing really to do with vaccines being good or vaccines being bad or whether somebody can or should mandate a vaccine in the first place. The issue and the decision really focused on a legal technicality and whether that legal technicality precluded the court from deciding the issue being raised as a threshold matter. So the bottom line is the first, the Fifth Circuit vacated the preliminary injunction and directed the lower district court to dismiss the whole case for lack of jurisdiction, thereby reviving the vaccine mandate for federal employees. Topic number two, the EEOC, because how many episodes have I gone in the past, I don't know, two years, three years, without mentioning some new development from the EEOC? And the EEOC just recently issued new technical assistance, this time not on COVID-19 generally, but on another really important issue. It was to offer guidance on how employment discrimination laws address and apply to potential caregiver discrimination. I put caregiver discrimination in the bucket of those types of claims that are, in a sense, assumption-based discrimination. You're not necessarily discriminating because of a protected characteristic that one particular individual may have. But you are potentially engaging in discrimination because you as a company are making assumptions based on the inclusion of the individual or group of individuals in a particular protected class. So the EEOC had uh, recently issued a technical assistance document, as I said, and it says right on the first page of it, and you can get it at eeoc.gov or you can email me and I'm happy to send a copy of it to you. But this new technical assistance document applies, quote, existing federal employment discrimination legal principles involving caregivers to situations related to the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. And the EEOC has issued this technical assistance document in the form of essentially a set of FAQs, because the EEOC has recognized, as many of us have, that even as the pandemic continues to evolve, and many believe we're on the tail end of the pandemic, but notwithstanding that, the EEOC has recognized the challenge between juggling work and one's caregiving obligations. And the EEOC wants to make it clear that companies should be aware of this type of potential discrimination. So question number one in this new technical assistance document, when does discrimination against applicants or employees with caregiving responsibilities violate federal employment discrimination laws. And the EEOC is very clear on that. The EEOC says that caregiver discrimination could be a violation of federal discrimination laws, quote, when it is based on an applicant's or employee's sex, race, color, religion, national origin, age, disability, or genetic information, end quote. It can also violate discrimination laws if the act by the employer is based on the individual's association with somebody with a disability within the meaning of the Americans with Disabilities Act or based on the other individual's protected characteristic, the individual for whom care is being provided by the employee. The EEOC also makes clear that caregiver discrimination can exist if the act is based on intersectional discrimination. I talked about this issue about three years ago, and just as a little tease, I'm going to be having an upcoming episode devoted solely to this notion of intersectional discrimination. But caregiver discrimination can be a violation of federal discrimination laws if it involves conduct that constitutes intersectional discrimination. So maybe you're not just discriminating against 
female caregivers, or maybe you're not just discriminating against black caregivers, but black female caregivers. In other words, the intersection, the combination of two protected characteristics makes up, in a sense, its own protected group that can form the basis of discrimination. So if there is discrimination against black female caregivers, the EEOC says, for example, based on racial and gender stereotypes, or discrimination against a, an intersectional group of Christian female caregivers based on stereotypes involving religion and gender, that could constitute caregiver discrimination as well. So it is unlawful, the EEOC reminds us, that employers, uh, for employers to discriminate against male caregivers as well. If there are gender stereotypes of men as breadwinners and women as caretakers, this is not just a female issue, but there can be caregiver discrimination against male caregivers as well. Same when it comes to LGBTQ applicants and employees who have caregiving responsibilities. Now, it's important to understand that while you may have a discrimination issue, if you are discriminating against a caregiver based on the protected class status of the individual for whom care is being given, the Americans with Disabilities Act does not require an accommodation be made based on somebody else, in other words, the non-employee, someone else's disability. And the EEOC makes that clear as well in this new technical assistance document, saying, quote, the laws enforced by the EEOC do not provide employees with a right to accommodations to handle caregiving duties. So in other words, Employees are not entitled to accommodations, either because they have to perform caregiver duties or because of a disability that the person they are caring for may have. But if you are discriminating against the individual because he or she has caregiver duties or because you are making an assumption about caregiver duties, the EEOC reminds us that that could be violating federal employment laws. No, employers are not required to excuse poor performance simply because an employee has to provide or perform caregiving duties. That has been essentially the rule all along. You may have to, in some circumstances, provide an accommodation for somebody who has a disability themselves if they are unable to perform their job functions but generally, you are not required to excuse poor performance. You are not required to excuse an employee's failure to comply with legitimate workplace practices and policies simply because the employee has certain caregiving duties. So what does that all mean? Well, this notion of being a caregiver, it is not a new protected class per se. But the EEOC has issued this new document to remind us that caregiver discrimination may be unlawful under already existing EEO laws. And the EEOC is likely to focus on these types of charges, these types of issues, in their investigations and in lawsuits they may decide to bring. So I would keep this in mind. I would certainly be aware of this notion of caregiver discrimination if you were not already, and I would certainly add it to your training when you are in the process of training your workforce on EEO laws and best practices. Speaking of agencies that are continuing to announce uh, more of an upcoming focus that they may be having, the United States Department of Labor is an agency I wanted to talk about in topic number three today of my top 10 topics. The United States Department of Labor has announced that it will be increasing the number of FMLA audits that it does. Haven't heard about the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act in some time, but the DOL has announced that it's going to increase the number of FMLA audits that it does. Unlike many other employment laws and statutes, as you know, the FMLA can be very technical from the standpoint of process, 
timing, and of course the substantive requirements and forms that are involved with the FMLA. So as an organization, if you haven't done so recently, you might consider doing a self-audit. Of course, with some appropriate privilege protections utilizing either in-house or outside counsel, but consider doing a self-audit of your organization to see where you would land if the Department of Labor comes knocking on your door with an investigation that is either prompted by a random decision to investigate or by some complaint from one of your employees. If your organization has a third-party administrator, make sure you're looking into those processes as well because you're still responsible for them as your agent. Simply because you have a third-party administrator dealing with leave issues or accommodation issues or review of medical submissions by your employees does not mean you are off the hook if those processes and procedures and communications violate the FMLA. Does your FMLA policy need to be updated? There are very detailed requirements that are still necessary for those who are covered by the FMLA. What about your process? Have you looked at your process recently? Are you appropriately advising employees of their rights? Are you doing appropriate and required notifications and designations when it comes to FMLA leave? Are you posting what you need to be posting? Are you using correct and appropriate forms? What about your record keeping? If the Department of Labor came to you and asked to see your records going back some years, would you be able to provide those records and would those records be lawful and appropriate under the FMLA? Who is responsible inside your organization for dealing with FMLA issues? At the very least, those individuals should be trained on the updated requirements when it comes to the FMLA because as I said the United States Department of Labor will be increasing the FMLA audits that it performs and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that investigation or that audit. Topic number four the New York City salary disclosure law update. Now, now wait don't turn me off just because you may not have employees or operations in New York City. Keep the podcast episode going. I promise there's a lot more good stuff to come, but this too is an important topic. Topic number four is important. Why? Because this is part of an overall trend, not just in New York, not just in New York City, but around the country when it comes to pay equity and transparency issues. So if you are not a jurisdiction like Colorado, like New York City, where this kind of particular law has been enacted, I would be willing to bet that it will be proposed and perhaps enacted in your jurisdiction. So it's something to keep on your radar, something to be aware of. You may be remember if you are one of the many following this New York City salary disclosure law, that it was first enacted at the beginning of this year on January 15th, 2022, with an effective date of May 15th, 2022. Well, that raised a whole host of complaints and concerns, both administrative and substantive. And then we've gone months with the New York City Council and the mayor's office talking about amendments to the law and perhaps pushing the effective date for another half year. So, I'll start with the good news, and the good news is that an amendment to the New York City Salary Disclosure Law was just signed this month. So now the law is effective starting November 1st, 2022, not May 15th anymore, November 1st, 2022. It applies to all employers that have four or more employees. Now, all four of those employees don't need to work in the same location, and they don't need to all work in New York City. As long as you as an organization have four employees, and one of those employees works in New York City, your workplace is covered, and you need to be cognizant of this salary disclosure law. Interesting little footnote. 
one of the original proposed amendments raised the employee threshold to 15 employees, but that was rejected, so it has remained as uh, a threshold of four or more employees. Employment agencies, outside employment agencies, are also covered by this law expressly and regardless of the size of the employment agency. So employment agencies have to make sure that any of the job listings and advertisements that they promote or seek to fill comply as well with the New York City salary disclosure law. The only express exemption here, other than for those with fewer than four employees, a temporary help firm that is seeking applicants to join their own pool of available workers that they will be sending out to other organizations. For those temporary help firms, they do not have to follow this new law. What type of job listings are we talking about? Well, we are talking about advertisements, written advertisements for jobs, promotions, or transfer opportunities. It's not just for applicants, but it is also for current employees. So again, for new jobs, yes, but also for internal promotions and transfer opportunities. When we're talking about a written advertisement, advertising an available job promotion or transfer opportunity that is publicized to a pool of potential applicants or current employees that is a written advertisement that has to comply with the New York City salary disclosure law and it doesn't matter where the advertisement is disseminated it could be on an internal bulletin board it could be over the internet it could be printed flyers that are distributed at the job site or at a job fair and it could be written advertisement in a newspaper now here's an interesting point what this law does not do is it does not require your organization in the first place to create or use a written advertisement in order to hire for a particular position or group of positions. So you're not now required to go through your hiring process and use a written advertisement. But if you do, if you do use a written advertisement for a job promotion or a transfer opportunity, you must comply with this law. What about a geographic location? Well, here's where things get a little bit sticky because this law applies to written advertisements for positions, quote, that can or will be performed in whole or in part in New York City, end quote. So if you are perhaps putting an advertisement out for a position that isn't necessarily required to be performed by somebody within New York City, but it can be, that is something that will be subject to this New York City salary disclosure law. Again, it's a position that can or will be performed in whole or in part in New York City. And that means within New York City from an actual office, if somebody's working in the field, or if somebody is working remotely from the employee's home in New York City. It's also important to note that we're talking about advertisements not just for employees, and of course we're talking about full and part-time employees, but it also includes advertisements for interns, domestic workers, independent contractors, and other categories of workers that are protected under the New York City human rights law. So part of the ambiguity and part of the challenge I think here is you know, you may be doing one advertisement for a job that could be performed in New York City, but also could be performed in other markets. Why is that a challenge? Because when we look at what the New York City salary disclosure law requires of you, it requires that you provide both a minimum and a maximum salary disclosed in that advertisement and that range cannot be open-ended you cannot say for example this position pays twenty dollars per hour and up you can't say that this position has a maximum of sixty thousand dollars per year according to the new york city commission on human rights which is the agency that enforces this law that would not be consistent with the new requirements you have to provide a minimum and a maximum salary or hourly range for that position that can or will be performed in whole or in part in New York City. 
Now the kicker is there is a an element of good faith that is included in this new law. So what is required is that the employer has to state the minimum and maximum salary or hourly wage that the employer in good faith believes at the time of the posting the employer would be willing to pay for that advertised job promotion or transfer opportunity. Good faith is defined by the New York City Commission on Human Rights as the range that the employer honestly believes at the time the advertisement is listed that they would be willing to pay a successful applicant or a successful employee for a promotion or transfer opportunity. So we're talking about good faith here. If you're looking at the literal terms of the law, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't negotiate with someone later on when you get to an advertisement that had a minimum and maximum range and now all of a sudden a little bit of time passes and you have an applicant who whether because of changes in the market a labor shortage or that particular employee has much more significant experience or brings something more to the table and you have individually negotiated something outside of that range that you had previously advertised, that doesn't mean that you necessarily violated the law. Again, the good faith is looked at at the time of the advertisement. I would caution you, however, that if you are going to start to have too many instances where what you are paying your applicant or your current employee differs from the range or is inconsistent with the range that you put in your advertisement, it is likely that people will raise questions about, well, is this just a one-off negotiation situation or are you really not acting in good faith when stating the minimum and maximum salary and hourly range? So again, when I talked a moment ago about the particular challenge here, Perhaps you are doing one advertisement for a job that could be performed in New York City, but it also could be performed in other markets. And those other markets outside of New York City may have different salary and hourly wage ranges than what New York City might demand. So it's something that you do need to think about strategically in terms of how you are going to go about your written advertisements. If you are going to still group the posting in the same single advertisement to cover New York City and non-New York City areas, you'll still need to comply with the law. Maybe you want to post the ranges and identify that it is based on geography, but still provide a specific range for New York City-based positions themselves. What does salary include for purposes of this law? Well, it includes the base annual salary as well as the base hourly rate of pay, regardless of what the frequency of payment is. You are not required to identify other forms of compensation or benefits other than the base salary or base hourly wage, such as incentive compensation, bonuses, overtime, severance, uh, health insurance, PTO, all you're required to put as a minimum and a maximum is the base salary and base hourly wage. There are two types of ways that this law can be enforced. One is through a private cause of action. However, it's important to note that through this new amendment with the law that is going to be effective first on November 1st, only current employees can bring a private cause of action. Unsuccessful or aggrieved applicants cannot bring a private cause of action under the new uh, amendment. But the second way that this can be enforced is through a civil penalty imposed by the New York City Commission on Human Rights. And one other thing that this amendment did is it provides sort of a right to cure for first-time violators. So, uh, while civil penalties may be imposed against covered employers for violations of this new New York City salary disclosure law, up to $250,000, if you show that within 30 days of receiving a notice of violation from the New York City Commission that you have fixed the violation, you will not be assessed a civil penalty for that first-time violation. So, there's a lot here. As I said, certainly if you have operations or employees in New York City, if you are 
providing a written advertisement for a position to be performed, uh, that can or will be performed in whole or in part in New York City, you obviously need to be aware of this new salary disclosure law if you're not already. And for the rest of you, given the context of this, and given the likelihood that something like this will be coming to your jurisdiction, I suspect, sooner rather than later, it's an issue that you should be staying on top of as well. Topic number five. And let's get back to COVID-19, because I guess uh, in 2022, you can't spend too much time talking about all this other employment law stuff without continuing to come back to COVID-19. But you are really starting to see a wave of COVID-related lawsuits, especially on the disability front. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because, again, going back to the EEOC, the EEOC has um, released some interesting data uh, for the period of the pandemic, April 2020 through December of 2021. And during that period, the EEOC has stated that it received approximately 6,200 COVID-related charges of discrimination under federal EEO laws. 6,200. In addition, the EEOC has announced that it received more than 2,700 charges related to vaccine-related issues, most of those coming in 2021 when all of the vaccine requirements and mandates were first introduced. Now, this is important because we know that charges filed with the EEOC uh, are the first required step that an employee has to take before bringing a discrimination lawsuit under the EEO laws uh, that are enforced by the EEOC, Title VII, the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example. Um, and of the COVID-related charges, the EEOC has further stated that two-thirds of them have raised ADA violations, a little more than 4,100 of the COVID-related charges have raised ADA violations. But it's not just disability that we're talking about. Many companies are continuing to see a flood of religious exemption requests under Title VII and religious and failure to accommodate religion discrimination claims under Title VII. The EEOC has started to get a little busy as well in terms of bringing its own lawsuits. It has recently brought a lawsuit against a company that allegedly denied a work from home requested accommodation. The EEOC has also brought a couple of lawsuits alleging discrimination against employees who have disabilities that render them vulnerable to more serious illness if they were to contract COVID-19. There are a lot of these cases that we are seeing now and we suspect and predict that we will continue to see a lot of these cases, as well as those raising really novel questions that we have not seen prior to the pandemic. Novel questions such as, how do you deal with the difference between asymptomatic and symptomatic workers? Of course, asymptomatic workers have a lot more challenges when it comes to what you as an employer can observe, what you as an employer may be able to confirm when it comes to their uh, condition or their need for an accommodation. What might constitute a direct threat to the employee himself or herself or to others in the workplace? What about long COVID? Long COVID is also something that is going to pose a challenge. People who may not have an acute situation, but may have what is being recognized currently as a very real condition, if not a disability, long COVID is going to continue to pose a challenge, and I suspect will be the subject of lawsuits down the pike a bit. want to talk to you about one specific uh, litigation, because this is really a fascinating one. You know, we talked, I think it was back in 2021, and I think also uh, the end of 2020, we were talking about workers' compensation and the extent to which you might find lawsuits being brought uh, by individuals for intentional acts 
causing the individual to contract COVID-19 and, and perhaps some worse condition, and whether those lawsuits were barred by the exclusive remedy provided under workers' compensation laws. You'll remember workers' compensation is a state scheme, but in most cases, it provides for a scheme and an exclusive scheme for individuals to get quick benefits as a result of injuries arising out of their work. And because they are getting these uh, benefits and these payments through a much more streamlined process, the employer uh, is getting the benefit of not being subjected to lawsuits in court over these injuries that arise uh, out of and in the course of the individual's employment. But here is a case out in the Ninth Circuit, out in California, testing this particular principle. In fact, this is the first federal appeals court, I believe, to assess and to determine whether there is employer liability in a situation where a spouse contracts COVID-19 from the uh, employee who worked at the company. In other words, in this particular case, and for those who are keeping track at home, the case name is QCMBA, K-U-C-I-E-M-B-A versus Victory Woodworks. In that case, the plaintiff didn't work at the defendant company. Her husband did. She says, the plaintiff, that her husband contracted the COVID-19 virus while at work and brought it home to her, and she was forced to be kept alive on a respirator for weeks after she developed a real significant and severe infection from COVID-19. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit recently heard oral argument on this issue and again believe that this will be the first federal appeals court to decide whether a state workers' compensation scheme can prohibit a spouse from filing a personal injury lawsuit when the spouse who got the COVID-19 was not the employee. A real interesting issue. We will continue to keep you posted uh, on that case and the result of that case. Again, QCMBA versus Victory Woodworks, Inc. in the Ninth Circuit. The case number is 21-15963. That number again, 21-15963. We'll keep you posted on that case as well as other COVID litigation trends as they develop. Next, topic number six. We are moving right along here. I hope you still have paper in that notebook of yours. Next is an issue about arbitration. You know, decisions continue to be issued on whether and to what extent arbitration agreements are enforceable in the employment context. All while, at the same time, federal, state, and local legislatures are also addressing the issue. And what's interesting is this tension between the judicial branch on the one hand, namely the United States Supreme Court, which has historically favored and permitted mandatory arbitration, and on the other hand, the legislative branch on the federal and state levels, which seem to be trying to restrict the ability of companies to mandate arbitration in the employment context. You've seen that recently on the federal side, certainly with the United States Congress, passing a law prohibiting mandatory arbitration of sexual harassment and sexual assault claims. There are many people, myself included, who believe that that is just the start, but that Congress is going to be looking to expand that to other and maybe all types of employment discrimination and harassment claims. But for the moment, I wanted to just focus your attention on a new Supreme Court decision. The United States Supreme Court just issued another decision regarding how long a party can continue to litigate a dispute in court before raising the fact that an arbitration agreement exists that requires the dispute to be arbitrated. Again, for those keeping score at home, the case name is Morgan versus Sundance Inc. The defendant was a Taco Bell franchisee who required uh, its employees to sign mandatory arbitration agreements. For purposes of this case, it was involving a wage and hour dispute. Before this Supreme Court decision, an employer that had an arbitration agreement in its back pocket may have been able, 
in some circumstances and in some jurisdictions to see how the litigation was proceeding before later deciding to move to compel arbitration so long as the employer could show that the delay in bringing it up the delay in raising the arbitration issue did not cause any harm or any prejudice to the other side and in this case Morgan versus Sundance Inc the employer waited approximately eight months while it was continuing to litigate in court before moving to compel arbitration well, the United States Supreme Court majority decision issued by Justice Kagan rejected the test for waiver that was used by the majority of circuits, which included a requirement that prejudice be shown in order for uh, a waiver to have taken place. Instead, the United States Supreme Court said that the prejudice requirement is nowhere to be found in the Federal Arbitration Act, but is instead a bespoke rule that was created by courts. And because it was nowhere to be found in the FAA, even though the FAA policy favors arbitration, federal courts are not free to invent procedural rules and tests that favor arbitration. So the bottom line, as a result, employers will now need to make a decision really at the outset of any court-filed case as to whether to compel arbitration, or the other side is going to have an easier time claiming that you have waived your right to compel arbitration because you're no longer required to show prejudice or a lack thereof. Topic number seven, when was the last time we talked about overtime and exemptions to overtime? Wow, there was a whole lot of back and forth during the Obama administration in 2016, and that seems like a decade ago, frankly. And the on-again, the off-again, new regulations back then that were going to change all of the exemption rules. Well, I'm starting to hear some rumblings that the United States Department of Labor will have some attempt at changing the overtime exemption rules again not necessarily on the job duties front but on the minimum salary threshold which was a topic of big debate again back in 2016 during the obama administration and the obama dol it is currently set on the federal level at $684 a week meaning putting aside the job duties portion of the test an employee had to at least be paid on a salary basis a minimum of $684 a week in order to be an exempt employee. Keep in mind, as I always say, that that is, again, the federal salary threshold. There are states like New York, for example, that have a higher threshold. And if you are in a state that has a higher threshold, you are required to follow the higher threshold when determining the exemption status of employees. So there's no particular proposal out just yet, but we are hearing that one may be coming soon. So keep that issue on your radar as well, and we will keep you posted. Topic number eight, can office birthday parties get your company in trouble? This is an interesting one that has made a lot of headlines over the past several weeks, not for reasons that you think. Typically, when we talk about office parties, we're doing so in the context of harassment or discrimination or retaliation. But here, we're talking about it in the context of disability, and especially mental disabilities, the not-so-obvious kinds. Again, as I said before, we're going to devote future episodes to this issue in more depth when it comes to how to deal with mental disabilities and accommodation requests for mental disabilities because I think the issue is really so important. But I wanted to highlight a case that really brings home why employers really need to take this issue seriously. A Kentucky jury just awarded $450,000 to an employee who didn't want his birthday celebrated in the office yet the employer celebrated in the office and anyway yes you heard that right this particular company like many organizations celebrate employee birthdays and that's all well and good particularly when the employees are joining in on the fun this particular plaintiff told company management that he didn't want to celebrate his birthday he didn't want his birthday celebrated in the office 
because of bad memories that he had surrounding his parents' divorce, which he associated with his birthday, after which he developed significant anxiety disorder. Well, on his birthday, the plaintiff went to the company office break room. The company apparently ignored his request, and co-workers had a banner and started celebrating his birthday. Now, I'm leaving out some of the facts, certainly, here, and, and the decision is a real interesting one to read. If you want to get a copy of the decision, uh, please let me know, and I'm happy to send it to you. But the bottom line is that this individual, this employee, sued for disability discrimination and won. He was awarded $450,000 from a Kentucky jury. There is likely to be an appeal in this case, but it is a cautionary tale, I believe, that employers, you should not minimize requests from employees when it comes to disability-related issues or requests for some sort of accommodation. Don't consider the particular facts of a particular case to be comical or a joke. Don't minimize them. Don't fail to take them seriously because they can lead to exposure and claims and, at a minimum, bad employee morale. Number nine, topic number nine, Maryland just became the 10th state to enact paid family leave. Congratulations to the state of Maryland becoming the 10th state to provide paid family leave. Again, when we're talking about trends, you are seeing it come up all around the country. States and local governments are doing what the federal government has been trying but has been unsuccessful in doing, and that is provide for paid family leave under certain circumstances. So if you are in the state of Maryland, if you have employees or operations in the state of Maryland, make sure you familiarize yourself with the new requirements there, as you should determine whether if the state you are operating in or have employees in, and that has become more challenging with remote work, whether you are required to provide certain types of paid family leave or paid medical leave that you have not to date. Topic number 10, we finally got here. Topic number 10, if there is one thing that can be said about the pandemic, it is that we have all created and overused a whole lot of new buzzwords and phrases in our pop culture, in our email communications, our texts. If Seinfeld were still on the air, he would have run with this if he was still airing new episodes. But I am here to help you. I am here to help your organization. Do you want to know why? Well, that's not exactly the only reason why. But I am trying to help you educate yourself and your workforce because the overuse of these phrases and these buzzwords are really starting to get annoying. And when I was thinking about this topic, I stumbled upon uh, a new um, Etsy list of exactly that, of buzzwords and phrases that were becoming overused. Uh, some are specific to the pandemic. Some I have added to the list. Some are just general non-pandemic specifics, uh, specific phrases and buzzwords. But here's a fun game. As I read this list to you, think about how many of these do you use on a daily basis or overuse on a daily basis? How many of these on this list actually annoy you? So in no particular order, here's the list of some of the most cringeworthy office and pandemic-related buzzwords from 2021 and 2022. Cohort. Close the loop. Hop on a call. Hope you're well. And you can't see it, but the word your is Y-O-U-R with S-I-C in brackets. Hope you're well. Oh. B2H, business to human. How many times are you using these phrases? How many times are people using these phrases to you? Mainstream media, agile, trying times, nice to e-meet you, nice to meet you virtually. We're all in this together. 
we remain cautious, ideate, ideate, non-fungible, social distancing, post-pandemic, deep dive, ASAP, which we all know is a passive-aggressive way of saying, get me the damn thing now, keep you in the loop, giving 110%, just checking in, no worries, I'll circle back, um, you're on mute, wait, what? That being said, to be honest, or the lazy acronym TBH, Zoom bomb, new normal, unprecedented, uncertain times, and finally, pivot. How many of those are you overusing? How many of those have been overused to you? Either way, they have made a list of the most annoying, the most cringe-worthy office and COVID-19 pandemic-related buzzwords of 2021 and 2022. I suspect we'll see more on that list as we get through the second half of this year. If you have any that did not make the list, but that you find yourself using and overusing or you can't stand when other people use, please send it to me. Let me know what's bothering you, please. I will air it on a future episode of this podcast. Please let me know. And oh, by the way, keep the questions coming as well. Keep the comments coming. Those topics that you want to hear more about, questions about fut- about prior episodes. I was going to say future episodes, but that would be very uh, prescient of you. Keep the comments. Keep the questions coming. Keep the feedback coming. I am doing this all because of those comments. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of you listening to these episodes. And this marks the end of our top 10 issues that I thought you needed to know about as we come to an end of this Memorial Day weekend 2022. So until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.